Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my Food Insight podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and recovering baker, take you through all things food and psychology and look at the role that food plays in our lives. In this episode, I had the pleasure of breaking bread with a food hero of mine. Stella Parks, also known as Brave Tart, is a pastry chef who trained at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. In 2012, she was named as one of Food and Wine's Best New Pastry Chefs and was this year nominated for a prestigious James Beard Foundation Award. She's the resident pastry guru at Serious Eats, a website renowned for its meticulously researched recipes with a generous dose of the science behind your favourite foods. I've been a fan of Stella's for years now and really appreciate the time, effort and generosity of everything she puts out. In this episode, we talk about how boxes of cake mix set her on her culinary path and the link between Oreos and time travel. Stella also troubleshoots some questions from followers on US and UK baking recipes. She'll also be sharing an exclusive recipe for her cinnamon rolls. More details on that at the end of the podcast. For now, please enjoy my conversation with Stella Parks. Well, good afternoon for me. Good morning for you, Stella. <laughs> um, good afternoon, morning. And it's, it's 10 where you are? Yes. Okay, and you're in Kentucky at the moment? That's right. How's the weather in Kentucky? It's beautiful. It's just now starting to think about fall. Mm. And it's not quite there. It, it, it peaked up pretty warm yesterday, but it's kind of in the evenings that like crispness is there. Mm. And it's my favorite. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. It is lovely. I mean, I'm a big fan of summer. I get a bit sad um, <laughs> when summer comes to an end, but <laughs> there is that lovely light that autumn has when it just comes in kind of kind of golden in the mornings, which is really beautiful, actually. Yeah, it's, it's pure magic. And it's baking season. So that's, I mean, you know, people make pies through summer and you can make ice cream and stuff. But once the weather turns cool, it's like no holds barred. Everybody can make everything and your oven won't get the kitchen unbearably hot. And it's, no, it's, it's, like, it's, it's the time for kind of being inside and having the oven on and not really leaving and stuffing your face with baked, delicious things. Yes. And speaking of which, I'm here quite happy <laughs> and I have just made your cinnamon rolls and for these episodes of the podcast the idea is really about getting to know one another and getting to know people and their food stories you sent me your cinnamon bun recipe why did you choose that recipe what does it mean to you well I like that it is an actual bread so it really meshes with the concept maybe a little too literally but it's, <laughs> it's an actual bread and I do think that American style cinnamon rolls are a little distinct from styles served elsewhere. 
And I, th- I think it's kind of an interesting, like, we're like, okay, let's make some cinnamon rolls and put frosting on them, <laughs> which, is kind of, which is kind of obscene. Um, but I'm super into it. I'm here for it. And they're somewhat influenced by the prevalence of Cinnabon, which is like a, a franchise or a chain of uh, cinnamon bun shops that are based in malls and airports and things like that. Mm. And they're kind of like, if you eat one, you'll definitely want to die by the time you're done. <laughs> they're like, they're kind of awful, but they're also kind of the best, especially if you have like childhood memories associated mm-hmm. with them. And so I, maybe Cinnabon has, has crossed the pond and, and it's available we everywhere now. I don't know. We have a few. Yeah. Um, but I figured it would be a good way to inflict an American breakfast upon you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the sharing the love. <laughs> so which, which came first in terms of the frosting? Because you're right, it is very different to kind of either a British cinnamon bun or even a Scandi one, which is kind of just a very dense dough, almost quite dry filling, isn't it? It's kind of just cinnamon and a little bit of sugar. Yeah, um, yeah. And this is a very, it's very much a kind of very soft, pillowy, yeasty dough with a generous serving of vanilla cream cheese frosting so which came first was it the Cinnabon and their frosting or did they just take something that was already really popular in the US and run with it Cinnabon itself is really just like the kind of the corporate pinnacle of a cinnamon rolls uh, life life cycle uh, the American style cinnamon rolls actually evolved out of um, Parker House rolls which were a type of like really soft and fluffy dinner roll that people had. And that's one of the few recipes in America that evolved in restaurants. Like virtually all recipes that are famous for people to make at home evolved from the home cooks because that's just kind of the nature of our country. Uh, We didn't have as many professional bake shops and pastry shops and such uh, being a a new country, but people came over with expectations about what baked goods were. And so the people are having to make them at home and, and there weren't as many professional bake shops and like high-end restaurants early on in the career of our country. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Parker House Rolls were a restaurant-based bun. And when people started trying to make these things at home, it was really inconvenient for their schedule because it involved like this really long overnight rise and kind of handling the dough at different times. And mm-hmm. it was a little bit like difficult for the average home cook to get it on the table at dinner. But that kind of overnight rise made it really convenient for having at breakfast. And so for a time, Parker House rolls in the home kitchen were often served at breakfast. Uh, it was just like a morning bread. And from there, people kind of figured out that you could, you know, make a fun little twist up cinnamon roll with them kind of in the style of European and British cinnamon buns and, mm-hmm. and rolls. But, but the nature of the dough is that it's just so much softer. And as near as I can tell, frosting came along as an innovation of, um, manufactured mass-produced cinnamon rolls that were sold in supermarkets Um, probably because they tended to bake up not as delicious and tasty Uh, and maybe needed a little extra TLC to be palatable there's little twist apart rolls that we have them in supermarkets here Um, there's like little tubes filled with dough you kind of twist it Mm -hmm. and they explode open and fetch out the rolls and put them in a pan and so that that was like the first to my knowledge like real appearance of frosting because aside from that frosting was mostly decorative like the same Mm -hmm. way you would have um, potentially a little cross of frosting on hot cross buns mm-hmm. here. I know it's often a paste mm. over there, but just like a, a little tiny embellishment. And now it's like a full on like cake level <laughs> frosting. <laughs> what, do you remember when the first time was that you ate or made these cinnamon rolls? I can remember there's a chain called TJ Cinnamon mm-hmm. and it was kind of like a Cinnabon situation. And it was like a much smaller chain and it popped up, um, locally at like a new mall that we had 
and I can remember being really, it was like kind of a failing mall because they were trying to establish it in like mm-hmm. this downtown area here in Lexington, Kentucky. And at the time, you know, in the early 80s, we didn't have much of a downtown. It had been that whole like urban flight situation. So our downtown was mostly shuttered and empty. And this company comes in they said, we're going to put in this like cool, like funky indoor downtown mall and bring in these like cool, like, you know, chains and corporations that people have never heard of. It's going to be great. And it went in as, like, a super disaster. But I have this memory of, like, being in this, like, almost, like, ghost town abandoned mall (laughs) with my parents. And, like, they would serve the cinnamon buns, like, really small ones. Like, I don't know, like, an inch and a half across tops. And they'd serve them in a paper cone. So you get, like, a, you know, a half dozen of them or something. And they'd be, like, the frosting would be kind of drizzled on the way you would drizzle, Mm -hmm. you know, a sauce over ice cream. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember holding that little paper cone and, like, eating the cinnamon rolls and like my dad carrying me on his hip and it just being this like really weird ghost town malls like it's like this indelible memory for me um but I've loved them ever since like whenever I I had them as a kid I would think about that first incident and so for me they kind of represented this weird like exploration and like going to a new place and trying something new because that's what it was to me at the time Mm. uh and so I've kind of always like retained that I don't actually talk about that in my book because I felt like it was a little bit too much of a personal memory and not so much of a iconic American mm-hmm. thing everyone could relate to, but that was my experience with mm. them. No, but that's a, a really lovely story and it kind of conjures up for me as the listener the idea and the image of you with family and this new kind of food experience and the role, the way that those things were all tied together because that's kind of what the, the podcast is about. Is you know, food isn't just fuel, it's not just something we eat to kind of get through the day, but it links us back to memories it links us back to people it links us back to to different times in our lives and it's I think it's really important to remember that remember that but also really nice to hear other people's stories about that so who taught you to cook were you kind of self-taught or did you have someone pass down the skills to you a little bit self-taught I mean I can remember my my dad teaching me how to make buttermilk biscuits he was like more of the baker in our family. Um, Mom made dinner and stuff all the time, but dad would make like cinnamon rolls and talk how to make pancakes and, and things like that. That was about it. It was like a pretty limited repertoire for them. Mm-hmm. But I had some babysitters who used to always, when they would come to watch me and my brother, they would bring like a box of cake mix and a couple tubs of frosting and a little thing of food coloring. And they would basically just be like, entertain yourselves, you know, like, and then they'd just clean up the mess when we were done, because like, what's the worst we could do? So we used to always make cupcakes when our babysitters were over and then frost them all in like a thousand, like insane colors that we would just like, you know, mix together in little cups. And that was like, for me, like a kickoff point, I really fell in love with making things. Mm -hmm. And so then I can kind of remember, like, I must have been, you know, 10 years old at this point, and going to bookstores with my parents and then kind of veering off into the cookbook section because like there was going to be the blueprint for making more things. Cause mm. I was, you know, it had quickly eclipsed the box mix. I was like, okay, I can do this. Um, so I started picking up, uh, it was pretty cute looking back at it, like cookbooks for kids that were like really colorful and they would mm. show like these like individual photos of like the mise en place. And so I could like see what the ingredients were supposed to be and what the equipment was supposed to be. And, that was a really fun experience for me and my parents were pretty cool with it. They're just like, cool, you're having fun in the kitchen, go for it. And I just enjoyed the process more than anything. I didn't come into it as a foodie. I came into it as someone who just like liked hands-on kind of crafting projects. Yeah. And that's something that's, that's really characteristic of, of your style. Certainly. Well, the way I found you was when I was back doing, doing the show, doing Bake Off and I was looking to, I think it was, I was trying to get into the final. So it was the kind of 
the most important set of bakes that we needed to do and I was oh my I was gosh. desperate not to be sent home I was like I can't get to this point and and be sent home now because it's that thing of just not knowing what it would be like to be to be there we'd been set the task of making an opera cake but it veered very far off the traditional mine had um passion fruit jelly in it and it was it was dark chocolate and I had a lime curd all sorts of things were going on and I thought I needed to get a little textural element in there and I wanted to put some foyotine in there and I didn't have a recipe none of the books I had had a recipe no everywhere I looked online said you could buy it and I was like I'm not going to get away with buying it and yours was the only place on the entire internet and I looked wow <laughs> that had the recipe and I was just so blown away a that it was it existed but b that you've gone into the detail of why each of the ingredients was in there and also had kind of reduced it to be a very useful kind of home baker's quantity because otherwise you end up with kind of tons and tons of the stuff <laughs> and yeah. um so so first of all thank you very much i made it into the finals <laughs> and i think yeah <laughs> that's um, so amazing i didn't realize i i guess i just figured that you found me kind of in the later years mm. so to speak that's amazing story <laughs> But what is so characteristic about you is the, the quality of the detail. And I think certainly for me as a little bit of a, a bit of a food nerd, but a, a nerd in general, knowing the detail and the science and the story is, is so helpful in helping me to understand why I'm doing something, the value of it, the process of it, and how that then translates to other things that I'm making. So it's, it's really interesting to yeah. hear that, that that started really early for you. Yeah, I feel like it was a lot like a puzzle, you know, like I would do something and it wouldn't turn out. And I think, especially maybe it's not that people have changed, but the internet has allowed for it that, you know, when something goes wrong for a lot of people, their first instinct is to blame the recipe or, you know, to assume that something was wrong with the recipe. Like I followed the recipe, like why did, you know, it failed. Mm -hmm. So the recipe is flawed therefore. And I think even as a kid, my sense was, Obviously, they did it. I can see this picture right here. Like, I didn't even think that they were tricking me. I, you know, because you're a child, you kind of have implicit trust of adults mm-hmm. when you're a kid. And so I just assumed the recipe was correct and that I had followed it, but that there was something else I, I didn't know about, that there was something beyond what was like written in the book. And I didn't know what that thing was, but I wanted to. And so I kind of have had a lifelong pursuit of trying to nail down those variables that people might not realize and that not even all recipe authors would think to mm. quantify in a recipe. Because even that story about the the origins in the US of the cinnamon rolls and how they started off as a hotel bread and then were adopted and adapted gives you a much fuller understanding and appreciation for what you're eating rather than just slamming it down as much as you <laughs> might want to. Yeah, these 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 recipes, these desserts and, and breakfast treats and things like they they didn't appear out of nowhere. They evolved out of a, a social context and an economic context and a cultural context and it's really cool to kind of realize like where they fit in the puzzle uh, for us all and, and culturally. And for me, that's been cool because I think especially in America, there's this kind of idea that these brands invented things that like mm. Nestle invented chocolate chip cookies and, and things like that. And we accept it. We're like, Oh, this is the story that we've been told. There you go. And then it's kind of like, no, that's not the case. There's, there's a much more complicated story happening mm. for these things to have evolved and appear. And they've been evolving long before, corporation gets their hands on them and actually corporations are usually pretty slow to the game and we see that now they'll be everyone will be into like i don't know coconut oil and then like you know six months later some company is like new pop tarts with (laughs) coconut oil or something like that and you're like yeah we're kind of all over this craze so and that's always been true especially you know when 
trends weren't happening over social media in this like rapid fire way. Mm. By the time a company again in the 1950s was picking up on a trend, it had definitely been around for a while. Yeah, and I think especially with America being a nation created by immigrants from all over the world with all of their own personal food traditions and histories and stories and needing to find a way, I think, of creating a sense of home because, you know, you're in this new environment, you're in this new territory, completely different climate perhaps to, to where you came from, but you need a sense of, of safety and security and how food can do that, you know, not just on a kind of individual scale or family level, but in, on a much broader level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had that experience while I was living in Japan. Uh, I actually hadn't experienced like a ton of homesickness. I was just really committed to the experience of living in Japan and was super into it. And then one day at the store, I spotted a package of Oreos mm. and just kind of on impulse, I bought them because I used to eat them as a kid. And at that point, I probably hadn't had them in like 10 years or so. And so I took them back to like my little apartment later that night and was eating one. And like, it was just time travel. And I felt like, you know, I'm in this place that's like so far away from home and has such a different and beautiful culture. And this this corporation has brought me this cookie of my childhood <laughs> delivered to this spot, you know, across mm. the world. And that was a really cool experience to kind of realize that Oreos just weren't like junk food from my childhood, that they're a little bit of like a cultural anchor or a, an emotional anchor because they were, to me, they were associated with like these warm childhood memories of like after school snacks. And my brother and I went to this little school that was like too small for a bus. So my parents <laughs> would have to drive us to school every morning and you know, through the countryside and to the school and all this stuff. And so my memories of eating Oreo cookies are like, you know, my mom picking me up and like being in the car and like looking out the window on the ride home and eating the cookie and being safe and mm-hmm. taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so it's amazing how much those feelings are embedded like in taste memory. So that like all these years later, I'm in Tokyo, Japan, eating an Oreo and like having these memories and sensations like just like flood over me because mm. food does connect us to these these moments in our past. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's beautifully put. How did you find yourself in Japan? What were you doing there? Um, I kind of call it my, my quarter life crisis <laughs> where I had um, gone to culinary school and uh, had been really fortunate to get a, a scholarship for that covered about half my tuition. So I, I was doing fairly well after culinary school that I was able to like not be like drowning in student debts. And mm-hmm. um, I had had two really good jobs that were awesome, awesome opportunities for someone to find working in Kentucky, which is not really um, at the time, not really a particularly culinary destination, if you will. And so I've been working, and I had left kind of fine dining, and I was working in a little bakery, and. It was just like the busiest little bakery in the world because it it was in the middle of nowhere. So I thought it was going to be like a sleepy little job out in the countryside. But because it was in the middle of nowhere, it drew these enormous crowds from everyone else in the middle of nowhere who had nowhere else to get baked goods and breakfast treats and things like that. And so it was actually a full service restaurant and it was a bakery, but we would, you know, make egg sandwiches in the morning and have our bread be used in sandwiches in the afternoon. And then, you know, in the evenings you could get like a, BLT or something on your way home. Okay. And so Kentucky's horse industry. So this place was just like constantly slammed with um, kind of country folk who were working in the horse industry, who were either horse trainers or, or working in the stables or working to manage the properties. And it was just constantly slammed. We were constantly running out of things. And the nature of the shop was that I had to make pretty basic things. So I was just like making brownies and cookies and muffins and like not 
exercising much creativity. There just wasn't time to, I just had to produce so much stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just got really burnt out. I was like working 70 hour weeks there mm-hmm. and it was just wild. And it was a really positive and great experience. Like those people are still dear friends of mine. Like the experience was good. But at the end of it, I was just like, what am I doing with my life? I've been making like muffins and cupcakes since I was, you know, eight. Like, is this what I want to do as a career? Like this is, am I living up to my potential or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just kind of struggling with that thought. And so I found a language school in Tokyo and it was like unbelievably cheap. It was like $5,000 for three months, (laughs) but it was actually this totally amazing school. So I like totally paid this money online and like bought my tickets and looking back, it could have gone so horribly wrong. Um, But it was actually just this tiny little school that was cranky. They had a bajillion students. It was like this, you know, I don't know, 15 story (laughs) building, just like cram packed with students. And I was in class 40 hours a week. It was like a full-time job. So I was like, I decided that I knew from culinary school that Japan had a really strong culinary tradition mm-hmm. and that they had really amazing bakeries and that there were Japanese students coming to the Culinary Institute of America where I graduated, you know, like in mass almost. And everyone that I'd ever talked to who was talking about amazing pastries that they'd had in their world travels were always like, oh, Tokyo, the pastries are amazing. So I just got it in my head, like, that's what I'll do. I could learn how to bake in Japan and then I'll be exercising a more intellectual side of myself because I'll have to learn the language and I can still be doing what I'm trained in. And so, I don't know. It was like, I was mm-hmm. 21, 22 when I figured wow. this out. So I, it was just like kind yeah. of a harebrained idea. Um, so yeah, so I, I moved to Tokyo for a little bit and that was the goal. That was the plan. And obviously that's not what happened. I'm not a pastry chef in Japan, but <laughs> it, um, I had a great experience like learning the language and, you know, being exposed to, uh, different interpretations of classic desserts, mm-hmm. which is really incredible. You know, we'll see things like here in a bakery, someone might make, I don't know, a PB and J croissant or something. Mm. And so kind of seeing like that happen in Japan, but with their ingredients and their kind of cultural traditions coming into it. And that was a really eye-opening experience and kind of a, a good way to kind of broaden my understanding of how desserts can be created. Uh, so altogether it was a good experience, but something of a a little like rabbit for me to have chased at the time yeah but but as those kinds of crises go it was a pretty well thought out (laughs) cultured one so it it kind of worked out quite well for you did you manage to do any baking in any professional sense while you were out there no I didn't it was actually really funny because um so the school that I was going to was targeted towards um Korean animation students or Korean art students who were looking to work in Japanese animation firms uh, to, you know, for like anime and stuff or work in like the manga industry. And so it was like all these Korean students and there's like eight Americans in the whole place. And, and it was like this kind of easy to get lost situation there. And, you know, they didn't know any English and I obviously didn't know any Korean. And so we're trying to like get to know each other through like broken Japanese. And so I was trying to tell everybody that like, I was a pastry chef and that's what I was, I went to, you know, they wanted to come to Japan and work in art studios and animation studios. And I was coming to Japan because I wanted to work in bakeries. And so then they're like, Oh, well you should bake us something. And the problem is nobody has an oven in Japan. Like Uh the average household (laughs) does not have an oven. And so it's like, if you can't bake anything, like that's really a limiting factor. And then (laughs) it's kind of hard to be like, okay, well I'll make a pudding and bring that over on my one and a half hour commute across town carried by hand in Tokyo rush hour. Like, so there's some things that I, you know, I could make, but I wouldn't have been able to like a 
effectively deliver it safely mm-hmm. across across <laughs> Tokyo. And so, like, everyone was just like, you're such a liar. There's no way you're a pastry chef. Because like, I couldn't <laughs> prove it. And so I was, unfortunately, not able to do any sort of baking. I tried to make rice pudding once, and I think everyone was, like, horrified. Like, what have you done to rice? This is terrible. Sacred food <laughs> um, like, of the It did not ancients. go over well. <laughs> Um, so no, I unfortunately didn't really get to do any baking. I did get to tour the like, industrial factory that produces all of the breads for the 7-Eleven convenience stores, okay. which was truly incredible. It really changed my mind on, on mass-produced foods, which I kind of looked down on before. Mm-hmm. But going into these facilities, they're like spotlessly clean. I mean, just the cleanest place, cleaner than a hospital, cleaner than anything you've ever seen. And they're like making these like delicious breads and they're being made and delivered twice daily. So mm. it wasn't like, you know, you go to a 7-Eleven and pick up a loaf of bread and it's been sitting there for three weeks. Like it, it's never been there longer than eight hours. Mm. You know, like it would just be brought in constantly and looking at what they're doing and how the facilities work. I just kind of realized like these are people with just really big mixers. They're still baking in a very legitimate sense. They're not, mm. this isn't cheating. It's not like some kind of weird factory, like pumping out like piles of goop. This is actual flour and actual sugar and actual yeast coming together to make these breads and things. And that was kind of, you know, I don't think I've even thought about it until this moment, like, but what a perspective shift Mm -hmm. that was for me to realize that something coming out of a factory didn't have to be garbage. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point because I think, yeah, cheap food exists and, you know, cheap, unhealthy, poorly made food exists. But for the most part, the standards to which manufacturers are held and there's this kind of I think in certain ways unfair demonization of pre-packaged or processed foods whatever that word even means because lots of things are processed which are perfectly healthy for you Um, yeah and a kind of idealizing of the homemade or the small made and the batch made which Mm -hmm. is perhaps a little bit a bit too extreme to be real and I think it's useful for people to know that actually the standards are high and the people who work there care often um, and yeah. they, they want to produce something that they can be proud of and that they know is safe as well. Yeah. And I mean, I, I also think there's a little bit maybe of a classist undercurrent to that, that people don't even realize, mm. you know, that in order to be able to buy, you know, like artisan flour and local farmers market eggs and like all of these like super old fashioned in a way, like, mm-hmm. you know, back, back to nature kind of lifestyle and oh, I make all the bread that my, you know, my family eats. And well, you have to have time to do that. Mm. And you have to have, you know, the free time to make all, if you're going to make all the bread for your family and you have to have the resources, like especially where I live in Kentucky, you can't do anything without a car. Like I, I'm not physically capable of walking to a grocery store. And so if, if I'm buying all these amazing things to bake with, it's because I have a car and because I was able to go to all these places and and get things. Mm. And so I don't think that sometimes people examine the idea that, you know, a lot of, mass-produced food and a lot of convenience foods, I mean, to make good food choices possible for mm. a lot of people who wouldn't have access, who wouldn't have the time and resources to source all these things and to make all these things. And, you know, I don't know, I feel like that's something that people don't often examine, especially like foodies. There's definitely a little bit of a pinkies yeah. out kind of <laughs> attitude that can come through. <laughs> sure. No, no, I think there's, that's exactly right. And I think it's, there's something quite important about understanding that food isn't or shouldn't be um, exclusive it should be available for everyone to enjoy in whatever circumstances and that it's important for those reasons mm-hmm. and I think that's that's really really interesting really important I was going to ask you about what what is the food scene like in Kentucky because I have no idea at all <laughs> um, it's really changed 
a lot dramatically. I would say even in the last, like, humongously in the last 10 years, exponentially in the last five years, and then just the last few years, really radically. Uh, So it's been kind of like this slow-moving train, but now it's really built up some speed. And uh, it's so we're a little bit behind on all the trends just by nature that the time by the time some of our chefs have a chance to like experiment with new techniques they've, they've already been out a while in order for the you know the techniques to maybe appear online or somewhere where they can start like adapting things mm-hmm. to their own repertoire so uh, a lot of times if you see something was super trendy in new york like you know two years ago like it's hitting kentucky now <laughs> and so it's that's kind of fun but we uh we have a ton of really beautiful farms and farmers uh, and people doing good work in rural communities and, and so the restaurants are able to like really take advantage of this. And it's not in this, like, like I was talking earlier, like this precious sort of way. It's like, no, this is like a, a local farmer. Like, this is not, you know, a, a cop out or this is not um, some, you know, like hipster who's like growing, you know, eggplant in his backyard. Like, this is a guy <laughs> whose family has been farming this, you know, 600 acres of land, you know, 10 generations back or something. Um, so there's a lot of really cool farmers producing some amazing amazing products and you know local pork local beef local lamb and and everything like that and Mm. so a a lot of that is showing up in the restaurants which is so cool because I can remember being a kid and local was non-existent and all these farmers previously were kind of swallowed up in like the industrial farming complex so all the things that they were producing were being sent far away and sent elsewhere and so Mm. now we've kind of had this like symbiotic relationship that's happening between restaurants and farms where they're able to kind of become self-sustaining for each other and and maybe earn a better wage I think mm-hmm. which is always really nice in the food industry because it's not really a super lucrative business yeah, sure. um but so we have a lot of you know unique ingredients that are fun that you don't see in a lot of other places that we we have a fruit called pawpaws mm-hmm. which are sometimes called the hillbilly mango <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of like this weird um banana mango kind of hybrid fruit that's really fun uh, you know, cornmeal is a really important part of all of Kentucky's baking traditions and molasses, um, sorghum molasses in particular. And uh, we got, you know, we're, we're famous for our country ham and biscuits and buttermilk and, and things like that. So you see those influences show up in the, re- the restaurant scene a lot. So it's a little bit, you know, a little bit less like dance club music and slick tables than it is, you know, kind of like industrial spaces that have been cleared out and modified to become a restaurant but mm. still being able to get like this amazing like charcuterie board of all local meats and, mm. and things like that nice and do people though do people expect that you just kind of live on cake so. <laughs> <laughs> um they're not wrong uh i eat a lot of sugar what's really funny is whenever i go out to dinner with anyone even like m- my own friends and families are still a little slow on the uptake with this they're always like do you want to order dessert no, I, I definitely don't want to order dessert. I've been eating sugar for like eight hours today. I'm just ready for a giant block of salt. Like, give me something else. Um, so I probably do eat way more um, cakes and sugars and stuff than I should during during my work day of tasting things. And I, I That's kind of one of the things I need to like get under control in next year is like kind of rounding out my diet a little bit, a little bit better. <laughs> different food groups things not based on sugar yeah like maybe some greenery in my life (laughs) and so what does your your working day generally look look like what are you doing kind of 
from the moment you step in? Is it an office? Is it a studio? Is it the kitchen? What does your day look like? It's a, it's a mix. So my, my months are kind of divided up into zones. So I, I work for a company called Serious Eats and I go up and they're based in New York. They're in Brooklyn. And so I go up to New York for a week every month to oversee photo shoots with them and to be on set. Like I am the hands in the photos. I'm actually making okay. everything that's, that's happening. So I've got this and that's at the end of every month. So that's like this week of studio photography, kitchen time. But leading up to that, I've got two weeks of recipe development that happens so I can get all the recipes ready and in place for taking up to New York. Mm-hmm. And the week before that it tends to be more of a writing or writing week. Cause I'm like typing all these recipes up and like writing the techniques and working on the blog posts for them. So it's like, I go to New York for a week, shoot all these things, I come home, then I'm stuck in the office for a week, you know, writing all these posts up, doing everything. Then I'm back into the kitchen for two weeks, working on new recipes and getting those all nailed up. Then I fly up to New York and the cycle starts again. Mm. So that part's really satisfying because I thought when I left the restaurant industry that I would really miss, really miss it. And mm. I do miss it. It's a very different environment, but being able to like have so much time in the kitchen as part of my job is, is really helpful in that and kind of helps me feel... Like, I'm still connected to the pastry chef side of myself and not just, like, working a desk job. And how many iterations of a recipe will you go through before you kind of hit on one that you, you think is just right? Oh, gosh. Like, a, a <laughs> lot. I, I said before, I think about 12, 12 oh. times is a pretty solid number. And I'm also working on a kind of a multi-month cycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm not developing recipes in a two-week time period to shoot for use. Like, I kind of got... At any given time, I might be working on, like, say, 50 different recipes oh, and kind of puttering on all of them because sometimes they're symbiotic. Like, I may be working on, like, this is like an old example, but mm-hmm. like a recipe for angel food cake, and it's generating a lot of egg yolks. And it's the height of summer, so I know nobody wants, like, a super eggy custard tart, but I'm generating all these egg yolks from making this cake, so I'm also working on a recipe to use up the yolks that I may not kind of pull out of my sleeve or need to be ready for several months until the weather starts cooling back off. So I kind of have like this giant like cloud of recipes that are like in development at any given time. And then, I don't know, it's almost like farming. Like you have all these things out in the field and they're all at different stages of development. And some of them actually, you know, become ready faster than you expect. And and then suddenly you're harvesting, you know, like (laughs) half a dozen things. So it's a little bit like that. Like I never quite know which recipe is going to resolve itself and be perfect um, by the time I'm ready for a photo shoot. So it's usually at the last minute, then I'll tell our photographer and our team, like, okay, here's like the next eight recipes that are happening. It's it's a little bit, I'm a little flying by the seat of my pants for sure. But but we, we all appreciate it. We all appreciate <laughs> I think as as one of your dedicated followers, we really appreciate the time that goes into it because it is, when you were saying earlier on, when you were trying recipes and they weren't working out and you're like, oh, this it must be me because the recipe must be right nowadays that's not necessarily true there are so many websites and blogs and posts and accounts that recipes that go up could maybe someone's made it up maybe they've cobbled it together from something else that they've seen maybe it's just something they think (laughs) will taste nice i am yeah what is important which is kind of my broader point is to find somewhere with recipes that you can trust that you know that the work's been put in, someone hasn't just kind of made it up or cobbled it together and crossing their fingers. And that yeah. you're not going to be disappointed when you do kind of turn up at your friend's birthday party with a cake you hoped would work, but it was actually a, a massive disaster. Um, oh gosh, the worst. <laughs> but talking about disasters, I did put a tweet out yesterday 
asking people about British and American baking recipes and any issues that they had. So is it okay if we go through some of their questions now and do a bit of a troubleshooting? Yeah, let's try. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, so I've broken them down. We've got maybe six or seven questions and I've broken them down into categories because they kind of fell quite neatly into different groups and the first one first one Kate Hibbert says are American and British baking powders actually the same I never seem to get quite the same result or could it be the flour I would much sooner blame the flour um, as long as it's, it's double acting which I think that in the UK baking powder is still double acting mm-hmm. It, there's actually a, a pretty reasonable consistency from brand to brand. I, I would say, I, obviously, I, I would have to like mm-hmm. come visit you and bake for a week, which would be amazing. <laughs> which is fine. Um, to really, to really get a feel room. for these differences. Oh, I'm coming. It's on. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's a chemical, so it, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to regulate. It's, you know, made in the lab type of factory setting where it's formulated in a very specific way, and it's kind of easy to nail down, whereas something like flour is – an organic product that's grown from the soil and that it can depend on the, the varietal of wheat and it can depend on the growing conditions. It can mm-hmm. depend on it if it's a summer wheat or a winter wheat. And so there's a lot of variables that go into flour. And I would say even for people baking in America, using American recipes and American ingredients, flour is still the biggest wild card in any recipe uh, because it just, there's no consistency from brand to brand. Uh, yeah, so I would definitely say that that is something to be mindful of. And that's why I, I do often in my recipes will specify what brand of flour mm-hmm. that I'm using. And it's not that I'm trying to be this like freak job, control freak. And everyone who tries my book in the UK should like special order some like American flour or anything like that. It's just that it provides context. And that mm-hmm. way, you know, someone can look up and say like, oh, well, the flour that she recommends. And I've got kind of a section of my book on it is a blend of hard red and soft white wheat that's about 10% protein. And so it's kind of like a mid-range strength level. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard that Irish flour or an Irish style of flour can be very similar to that, where it's a little bit softer. It's about 10% protein. Um, it can be a little starchier, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. But that just kind of like at least 
provides a basis. And so if the kind of flower that people are all purpose flower that someone's picking up at a supermarket over there, it may be worth like checking the label and seeing where it falls on the protein scale or like just, mm-hmm. you know, doing first search for it online to establish that. And if it's too strong, you know, maybe cutting it with a little bit of pastry flour mm-hmm. so that it can be softened to something that's a little bit more similar to what an American product would be. That's, that's really useful to know because, yeah, the next one, Cynthia Ronzio says, the types of flour don't readily translate. I think she's in the US. She's like, it's not the same. Um, and she also says, we don't use leaf gelatin, um, which is the second part of her question. So you guys use powder gelatin, do you? Yes. I see. Yeah. And so gelatin's a crazy thing because I think um, kind of along the lines of flour that you think it's something that's relatively static and that... Even a lot of pastry chefs think, well, as long as you use the same weight of gelatin, it doesn't matter if it's powdered or leaf. Mm. But there's actually a, a, these, a huge number of differences in gelatin, how it's manufactured, whether it's um, sourced from beef uh, or sourced from pork, and how it's manufactured. Like Because uh, bovine gelatin comes from uh, cow hooves, whereas porcine gelatin comes from pig skins. Mm-hmm. And so those two different sources in the animal require vastly different processing methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for one of them, they have to use this like really intense acid process to break down the, the, the cellular structure and extract the gelatin, like to break down the collagen to get the gelatin. Mm-hmm. And then the other type, they have to use a highly alkaline process to break mm-hmm. it down. So the gelatin is formulated on these two like diametrically opposed systems, depending on which animal it comes from. Mm. And that can actually cause some differences too in recipes and, uh, and bloom strength changes mm-hmm. depending on brand. And, you know, when you buy leaf gelatin, that's a little bit more apparent because you can, they'll often say like, you know, silver or gold or mm. bronze or, or what have you. But in, in powder gelatin, it's usually kind of a static product. And so I think the standard formulation for powder gelatin uh, differs by maybe five to 10 bloom points between America and the UK. Mm. So I think the important thing is if you're, if you're working with gelatin is to look up the brands, the bloom strength of your, whatever brand you're using and kind of use that to adjust the recipe as needed. Because if you've got a a much stronger gelatin than what Mm. a powder gelatin would be, um, I know there is like a, a popular powdered gelatin brand, like Dr. So-and-so's gelatin yeah, yeah, or something yeah, like that. <laughs> impossible to pronounce. Ukka, I think it is. <laughs> okay. I was like, I, I have just some like vague memory of like Googling this one all the time. <laughs> um, but like that, I think I looked that up and it was within a few points of what American gelatin would be. So it might be like worth, uh, okay. you know, going to the trouble to pick that up in order to like have that consistency or to at least like reduce the mm-hmm. variability. I think that's probably probably the UK's biggest brand, so we, that should be pretty easy for people to pick up. So that's a good tip. Um, so we've got some questions about sugar. And okay. the first one is, so this is an American making British re- recipes. Um, Juliana says, my family says that the recipes, so I think she means the British recipes, aren't sweet enough. So I often add 30 to 60 grams more. Is that all right? And well, so my thoughts on this, well, it kind of depends on what you're making, you know, if you're making, yeah, a, for sure. if, you know, if you're making a rice pudding, then sure, you can up the sugar if you want to. Um, but it's going to make a difference to kind of chemical constitution in, in other things like breads and cakes and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it always depends on batch size. People will say that, like, can I just add a couple extra tablespoons of this or that? Or, you know, what if I cut, cut the butter, cut the sugar by this amount? And it's like, it depends on what percentage of the recipe that represents because you know 
adding like 30 extra grams of sugar is not going to be a big deal in this like huge batch. But if you've got, if it's a pretty small batch, if you're making like like 16 ounces of cookie dough or something like mm. that, uh, <laughs> like that's going to be like a really big percentage of, of what's happening. Uh, so it definitely depends on that. But I don't know. I guess I'm of a mind. I want to lean into it. I, I would want my, my British desserts to be what they are mm. and not to want to change them or make them something different and just kind of like embrace that. Because that's the thing with desserts anywhere is that they're formulated to go with the culture. And so, you know, if you're having tea with like milk and sugar, then you don't need your cookie or your biscuit to be a sweet because that's a good match. That's how they work together. But if you're an American and you're having like black coffee and it's like so bitter, um, like you may need to like bump the sweetness up. And that's why a lot of our baked goods are so sweet is because we're notorious for, you know, drinking like really strong coffee. Mm. Um, That's also very acidic. Yeah. I mean, and so there's, there are two points about that. And there's the kind of context in which you eat the thing that you're you're making you know yeah is it breakfast is it an afternoon meal are you having it with coffee or are you having it with a sweet drink or whatever but then there's also the kind of cultural context and maybe there's something to be said about british taste i mean we have pretty well bad teeth and sweet teeth as well and stereotypically but um is there a, a taste in america for things to be slightly sweeter are we talking about differences in the kind of cultural palette as well that are worth just bearing in mind yeah, I mean, I think that I think a typical American dessert is too sweet. Like, I, I struggle with the average bakery cupcake and the average bakery cookie. I find it too sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that is has kind of evolved because sugar is a preservative. So in, in local bakeries and even at home, people, uh, recipes evolve to use a fairly substantial amount of sugar because they need to keep because it, you know if you're living in the middle of nebraska and it's you know the 1920s and you're gonna make some cookies like you may not have like a lot of access to do this very often mm. to get the chocolate board or whatever so you want to make it and have it like be able to keep and i've got a recipe for chocolate chip cookies in my book and it calls for more sugar than flour and someone online was kind of like eviscerating me for that <laughs> they're just like you know, this is ridiculous and who needs to do this and blah, blah, blah. And like, this recipe is like verbatim lifted from one that was published in 1876. Like I didn't, I didn't come up with this formula. I wasn't like, let's just dump some more sugar in here. Like that's historically how the cookie evolved and how it, it came to be is to have this higher sugar content, um, largely probably for reasons of preservation. Uh, Mm. and so, yeah, so there is kind of like a, a lot of factors that go into like explaining why, a culture's dessert is what it is. And so I actually usually hear people are trying to like cut the sugar, or tame the sugar way more often than I hear anyone's mm. trying to bump it up. Yeah. Yeah. And this is when, um, cause I also, I have a, a very small jam business. Um, and, and so I'll go to market and I'll kind of sell direct to people. And I've spent a long time you know, preparing my recipes and testing them and they've won awards so they they taste all right <laughs> and um, you kind of know what you're I doing kinda, you know i have a fair idea of what i'm doing and then i'll have this conversation with someone and they'll say oh but um and it's a traditional it's a jam and over here the eu has regulations about what you can call jam and what you can't call jam and you have to have a certain percentage of actual sugar blah 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 and um so people come up to me and they'll say oh but it's got a lot of sugar in it hasn't it and they'll say well, yes, of course. <laughs> it's it's, it's essential <laughs> to to what it is, and otherwise it won't it won't keep. Um, and it, you know that's how you get the good set, and that's how you get a good flavor. And then I'll say, oh, but have you have you thought about using coconut sugar? And I just, 
Oh, it's okay. still sugar, guys. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and it's just, oh. Um, you know, so, that said, I don't know, have you have you tried the toasted sugar I recipe? Have. From... I have. I have a little bit left over. What, I can't remember what it is. I think maybe I put it in some banana bread, I think, and then um, I've got a little bit left over that I don't know what to do with. It feels too good just to throw it into tea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a perfect use for it, but um, maybe sometime you should try a little bit of that in jam because it, mm. if you have something that like people routinely say like they want this particular type to be less sweet or you have something that in your mind you're like oh, I wish I could mellow the sweetness but I don't want to add that much salt because mm. I know that's a thing when I've made jam that it's like I don't want it to be as sweet as it is but if you add salt then it just changes mm. if you had too much salt it changes the character of the fruit a little bit mm-hmm. and the toasted sugar especially like in a lighter toasted shade um, the sweetness drops down pretty strongly without like any overt caramel notes coming through mm-hmm. and that can be kind of a nice way or not specifically for you but for one who is wanting to make something less sweet without actually changing the fundamental structure of a recipe is like sugar toasted sugar is a pretty good swap and doesn't change any of its preservative qualities so you oh, can still that's a good tip have and everything I'll, turn out i'll um put the link into the show notes for people to go and find that because that 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 blog was it that particular blog post that you were nominated for the james beard award was it it was it was indeed it was, yes. <laughs> congratulations <laughs> i'm a i'm a fan of, of this technique it's, it's definitely my jam <laughs> um okay so back to the questions we've got I, and i didn't know this so caster sugar is available in small amounts says dc rock live and it's pricey is regular sugar okay is is caster sugar hard to get hold of in the u.s <laughs> Well, so we don't have those particular designations. We ah. have just plain sugar, um, which is granulated sugar, and then we have super fine, which I understand to be the equivalent of icing sugar of castor sugar of icing sugar. Okay, mm-hmm. in virtually all baked goods, it's not going to make a difference. The grain size is not enough that it changes the weight per cup. Okay. So it, it's not like it. It's vo- it's like it, volumetrically, it's still the same, and so you're not going to have any unexpected like problems switching between the two. And and with I, I use just plain granulated sugar, no special refinement or or small particle size. It's, I mean, it, it's small, it's fine, it's free flowing, but it's not as powdery fine mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as other types of sugar. Um, and we also have powdered sugar, which is what we would use for like frostings or something. And maybe that's icing oh, no, that sugar. Is, that is icing sugar. No, no, you're right. So maybe super fine um, is pasta. Yeah, and so anyhow, at least at least in American recipes, these distinctions are not important okay. um, because if you're going to be like creaming butter and sugar together for five minutes with a electric mixer, it it's going to all come out in the wash. It's going to be fine. And there may be recipes in particular that are, are British that do need that for some reason that I wouldn't be familiar with because I haven't, you know, done a deep dive on, on those style of recipes. But, you know, I'm thinking that maybe in some kind of shortbread or something like that, mm-hmm. that the really, really, really fine grain size would help increase the surface area of the sugar, which will help with moisture absorption or something like So it may be playing a, a real subtle role in some mm-hmm. recipe that you might not consider at first blush, but mm. at least in dealing with American recipes, there's not really a huge difference and you can just use whichever one is more convenient to be had. Awesome. Um, but yeah. it's, I would guess that that person also may just be experiencing some confusion over the labeling because, mm. you know, super fine sugar is very easy to come by. You can buy it in like five to 10 pound bags at the grocery store. So, um, Okay, cool. sh- you know, but maybe they're just like saw like a specifically like kind of yeah because I think in, the, in, like the British import section or, or something like that and thought that was their only option. I think it's a very traditional thing that you're not supposed to cook with, uh, not supposed to bake 
with granulated sugar over here you know it's, it's caster sugar for baking and granulated for putting in your tea or making jam mm. or that sort of thing i don't know how much that stacks up now it's kind of like the old thing of do you still need to sift your flour or you know depending on what recipe you do so um, yeah it might be worth people just trying out because granulated is cheaper as well so if you're going to save some money yeah um it might be worth yeah. trying out and seeing how the recipe comes out and then you know, making the switch if you need to i imagine there was a much more pronounced difference between the two at like the turn of the 20th century or something when the labels came into being and, mm. and the manufacturing standards at the time. And that's the case on a lot of things in America, ingredient wise, where like this was really important at this particular time period, but you know, our products have since evolved. <laughs> um, so, but they've kind of like the names have, have stayed the same because it's kind of traditional and people have recipes that call for these things. And so the manufacturers still have a solid market for it. So they're not going to discontinue it just because it's not as necessary anymore. And we've got one last one. Um, okay. It's in two parts. So the first part was, um, this is uh, Rachel Ogden-Hill, and she asks, what's the equivalent for us over here of corn syrup? Um, and then the second part of her question is, and also what is half and half? Um, is it like single cream? But somebody answered that um, in the tweet below it. And they said, Rachel, I had to ask the same one, the same question when I moved here. It's half full fat milk, half cream, and it's utterly useless. It's <laughs> utterly useless. I agree. I don't. I don't know. Like I haven't ever bought it. Half and half people tend to buy it to use as a coffee creamer. Okay. Um, it's very. I say this with love. It's very trashy to see a recipe that calls for half and half. It's. It's definitely like a. Okay, you're gonna get one box of cake mix, one thing of pudding, and two cups of half and half, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it is really handy if you do have a recipe that needs an equal proportion of milk and cream, and you don't want to buy a quart of cream for it. You know, like or you know, a pint of cream, you can buy a quart of half and half and have it kind of ready to go. But it's such a very, very narrow range of circumstances in which that would actually be useful. Um, but yeah, people buy it a lot for a coffee creamer. Right. And, and corn syrup, do you have an equivalent? <laughs> corn syrup does not have an equivalent. I mean, if if it's a recipe that wouldn't mind the added flavor, using golden syrup would be fine. Okay. Uh, I, I have a lot of recipes in my book that call for actually golden syrup first and corn syrup as a substitute because I like the added flavor. I use mm. um, golden syrup in my Oreo recipe, and it kind of adds mm. this like really subtle caramel undertone mm. that if you're just eating the cookie on its own, you wouldn't notice it. But if you had the corn syrup version, you would be like, hmm, maybe there's like a little something missing here. So it, in a side by side test, it comes through, but you wouldn't necessarily just know it off off the bat. So I'd say in a really wide range of cakes, cookies and candies, you could use golden syrup with a high degree of confidence. There are a couple occasions where the golden syrup might create some like visual defects, if mm. you will, like like in using golden syrup in place of corn syrup and like a plain vanilla marshmallow like you might have a like yeah. slight ivory color in the end instead of like a shock white color but i mean that's strictly aesthetic like you'll be fine and and usually the kind of really lovely flavor in golden syrup will kind of like help round out the edges in a you know high sugar recipe mm -hmm. like uh, marshmallows so I, generally speaking it's an upgrade great that's super helpful so let's talk about the book because um i think from the perspective of people who have followed your recipes for a while it's been a long time coming <laughs> it's kind of oh my god where it's been and why <laughs> so um what's how's it been how did did you have to take the proposal did someone come to you and what's the process been of writing the book 
oh my god just like my entire life um my my husband and I were joking that by the time the book was published I've been working on it for six years which is half of our marriage and we're like that's really I don't know if that's depressing or if that's an accomplishment um or a testimony to our our stick-to-itiveness um but I I actually had an agent come to me which is really unusual but I had been working at Sirius Eats and I had a column there called Brave Tart and um in kind of like a fitting turn of events that the founder of Sirius Eats Ed Levine his wife uh, Vicky Bajur is a literary agent and so she also represents Kenji who is the food lab mm-hmm. and so um when I was working on my column you know Ed came to me and he was like you know I think that you you have what it takes to write a book and that you should really consider that. And if you would like to talk to my wife, she's a literary agent and she can kind of help explain the process to you and see if you're interested. Obviously you're under you know, no obligation to use her or go with her. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very clear about that. And then you know, at the time it was just like a weekly call and it wasn't like it was my livelihood and he was my boss telling me this. Um, it was just like, you know, I was paid $25 a week. So there wasn't really anything <laughs> hanging over my head. It was like, we're all friends here. Um, but I did talk to her and she's an incredible person and just so smart and so intuitive and, and understanding like how uh, the publishing industry works and how the food world works and, and the intersection thereof. And she worked on Kenji's book also. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sat down and talked. And so she, she was just basically asking me, you know, what, if you wrote a book, what kind of book would you like to write? And I had you know not really considered writing a book. So it took a long time for me to figure out what, what did I have to say that was of value and that was also unique to the market? Because mm-hmm. there's no sense in like, you know, treading old territory again, which is a really, really easy thing to do when it comes to like iconic American desserts. I mean, that, that's not exactly <laughs> uh, unbroken ground, but I, I knew that there was a way to like kind of put a different spin on that. And so Vicky helped me work on my proposal and we spent a year on that. So oh, wow you know, she was not looking to like rush me through the process or you know, have any kind of fly by night situation. Just really took her time, really took my time to craft a proposal. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the publishing industry, um, a proposal is like basically a giant outline kind of book report of what your hypothetical book will be. Mm-hmm. So like in the fiction world, you just write the book and then shop it to publishers. Um, but in nonfiction, publishers want to see a more rough form of it so that they can help influence and that their editors who are, you know, really familiar with what's going on in the market and what's trending and what's a new area for growth that they can kind of help shape it to be the right book for the right time. So I worked on the proposal aspect, which is just this outline. You write a full table of contents, you write sample chapters, you write sample recipes. You might have sample photography. I had sample vintage ads, except ended up being a big aspect of the book. Um, and then we shopped the proposal around and there are actually a couple of, uh, publishers who were interested, but it was W.W. Norton that we chose because they seemed to have such a strong vision for what the book could be. And because the editor there, Maria Cornishali was also my friend Kenji's editor. Mm -hmm. So I knew that she kind of had a knack for food and had a knack for the style Mm. of approaching recipes that is on serious eats. So I knew there's kind of like an affinity or like an already established concept there. Sure. But also she has edited such illustrious books as The Joy of Cooking and oh, wow. The Cake Bible. So <laughs> she, she knows her stuff. Like, yeah. She knows her stuff. Like she's this legendary figure, um, which was extremely intimidating to be like, this is my first book and you edited The Joy of Cooking. I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, so anyhow, I, 
I, we decided to go with Norton. So they bought the proposal. And then I had from that point, two years to write the book. So I'd, you know, essentially spent a year writing the proposal, which is like, the, you know, if anyone's done any writing, once you've got a detailed outline produced, like the, the writing part isn't actually quite as terrible because you've already got like the structure the skeleton kind of arranged. So I spent two years writing the book and I did this while I was working full time in a restaurant. So it was, it, (laughs) it was a rough two years. I like never saw the light of day. I was just either constantly in a kitchen or in my office just writing quietly in the corner. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real. (laughs) It's a really hard process. Um, and it's a little bit isolating and, you know, you don't get to see your friends and family cause you just like, there's not enough hours in a day to do both. And, uh, it was, so, you know, it was, it was a very intense process. And then after that, um, I left the restaurant and then spent a year reworking those recipes at home because I knew that there was such a huge difference between working in a professional kitchen and having access to wholesale sure. ingredients versus, you know, baking at home. And I'm really fortunate in that my publisher, was okay with that timetable they weren't trying to rush the book either Mm -hmm. so I got to spend a year uh working on on the book at home and kind of it was little things like realizing how expensive chocolate is at the supermarket which I you know I've been in the restaurant industry since I was 14 so I've always had some type of access to wholesale purveyors Mm -hmm. and I was just like oh my god this is so expensive (laughs) and realizing other things that you know people uh tend to if you're buying some nice chocolate in America and you're going to a good shop for it, they're probably selling it in eight ounce blocks. Mm -hmm. And I had a a recipe that called for nine ounces of chocolate and just kind of realizing like someone's going to have to buy two eight ounce blocks to get that nine ounces. And they've just doubled their investment in this recipe. And it also means their expectations have gone up. And that if this goes sideways, they're going to be really salty about that, that, you know, that I paid all this money for all this chocolate and I didn't, you know, whatever. So uh, for some things like, Sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but do you feel that responsibility when you're writing it? Like, are you thinking, keeping your readers, your potential readers in mind when you're putting that Yeah, together? for sure, because um, I kind of touched on this earlier, that as I don't consider baking like this everyday thing everyone should be doing, it's, to me, it's something for, it's for the holidays, it's for birthdays, it's for celebrations, it's for graduations, it's for, you know, celebrating someone's pregnant or, you know, whatever. Like, there's, it's always, like, this joyous occasion, and so people are, trusting their special holiday, their special occasion to me when they're saying, okay, I'm going to make your recipe. And, and so I want it to work and I want it to be worth their effort. And so, you know, something as little as like reformulating a recipe so that only needs eight ounces of chocolate. So this person doesn't have to, you know, spend like $32 when, you know, $16 investment and one less ounce of chocolate is going to be a okay in the end. Um, and so I spent that year kind of just like figuring things out from that perspective or also realizing, you know, I had a couple of recipes that called for multiple mixing bowls. Actually, the cinnamon rolls that you made mm. are one such recipe where I initially the recipe was make the dough, cover it, set it off to rise, then make the filling. And then like later on, you'll like make the frosting. And altogether, that involves three bowls. And I was like, man, that's like if you have a small kitchen, that's a lot of cleaning up to do. And also it's a lot of, like, I used a stand mixer for every stage. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do people have three stand mixer bowls? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and so realizing, like, there are ways to, like, retool a recipe to be more uh, resourceful about how the equipment 
is used. And well, that's so, great because I, you know, and this hasn't been prepared, listeners, it might be a bit suspicious because when I was making it this morning, um, and you start out with the frosting first, and then you say, like, okay, now make the filling, just put it in the same bowl, and then just wipe out the bowl with, um, with paper towel and, and make the dough. And I, and I thought to myself, that is really useful. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, because, like, we always make cinnamon rolls around Christmas, and so even for me, that's like one of the few things I would make outside of a restaurant environment. So it would be like, oh, I don't want to like wash up all these dishes. So yeah, I just like wanted to streamline things. So that was a year. And then at that point, then we sent all the recipes off to be professionally tested by outside sources, by professional recipe testers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they offered their feedback and their insights and helped me nail down variables I hadn't thought of. And, and that was like a tremendous process to go through and, and really beneficial to the book at large and kind of helping me realize, you know, the importance of like different materials and conductivity, like prior to having it professionally tested, I had just said something like, you know, bake the pies in a pie pan or nothing else beyond that. And not really realizing what a huge impact the the material of the pie pan can have on a recipe. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're baking in heavy stoneware, it can add like up to 20 minutes of extra baking time for a custard pie because Mm -hmm. it provides so much insulation. Mm -hmm. And if you're making something in a metal pie pan, it can like shave off five to 10 minutes of bake time because it's conducting so quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's a make or break difference in something like a pumpkin pie or causing someone some anxiety that like it's been in the oven like 20 minutes longer than Mm -hmm. she said, and it's still jiggly, you know? So the recipe testers helped me realize like you need to say what type of material it is so that people have a reference point so that people understand that. And and that conductivity matters. And so that kind of informed a lot of other uh, ingredient or equipment choices for the book and so then we did that and then we spent a wild summer it was actually just last summer um doing all the photography for the book and then came all the edits and line edits and copy edits and indexing the book which was another kind of like uh intense process mm-hmm. and we had to spend all this time also uh securing all the legal permissions to reference all the brands because i don't say sure. you know how to make chocolate sandwich wafers i say how to make homemade oreos mm-hmm. so i'm actually invoking this name and that takes a lot of uh like legal tightrope walking so they had to spend a long time like making sure everything was done in such a way that we would not get sued <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. there was like a lot that went on behind the scenes and then um up until January of this year and that's when they cut me off like no more changes the book is done we're going forward but then at that point you transition into trying to like work on a platform or help it launch and secure events for mm-hmm. when the book comes out and so it's like it's st- you're still working on it. it's done and you're still working on it mm-hmm. um which is kind of wild yeah and you're in the middle of the I guess the book tour now is that, is that yeah that I am going? it's it's been it's been crazy and it's been so awesome I keep thinking that all the events are going to be empty because from you know my perspective I'm just like some random person living in the middle of Kentucky and like even I've been a pastry chef here for a really long time and you know I'm I'm known within the restaurant industry you know at the same time like uh, my hometown paper like hadn't ever written a story that I was you know working at a publication like Sears Eats that I was nominated for a James Beard award which is like kind of a big deal for a small town but like my local right (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, like locally, like nobody really pays attention or, or does anything. So um, it just like shocks me that I can. I went to a book festival in Decatur, Georgia, and I was like, nobody here knows me. I've never done the book festival before. Like whatever. But the tent where they set me up was like, huge, and I was like so anxious at the start because I was like, there's no way this 
there'll be enough people and it's going to be like I'm going to be on the stage it's going to be like six really sweet darling people <laughs> who are familiar with serious seats in the audience and it's just be so awkward to have this like big stage and I'd done events like that in the past when I was a pastry chef like someone would be like hey can you come speak at our thing and you know I would go and it would be like that so I already had this like experience of what it's like to be on a giant stage with a tiny audience and how like weird that feels because you're like guys do you just want to go get a coffee that would be easier way to communicate <laughs> um but anyhow the event was completely packed out and like there's like standing room only and I signed books for an hour afterwards and like I'm still like kind of reeling from that that there's that many people who would buy my book and want my signature it was really amazing and and everyone I would talk to would have stories that to me were just so validating like you know I, I made your cake for my brother's wedding I made mm. one of your recipes for you know my goddaughter's christening or whatever and it, kind of reinforcing my belief that that's why people bake and, mm. and so because of that like it's attached to special memories for them so they do feel like some kind of affection like your recipe was there on this important day for me and that's really special to me and like really kind of precious. And so uh, the book tour has just been amazing in showing me that these people exist because I, I can sometimes have this like strong sense of loneliness that you're just like writing recipes, throwing on the internet and they disappear forever. Just out into the um, void. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. But then like having all these people interact with you and, and tell you these stories has been really remarkable. And uh, I just like, I feel so supported and that's, that's I feel like, especially for a first time author, that's a really rare and uh, precious thing and so I want to kind of keep honoring that and keep uh, holding my recipes to the same standards to ensure that you know the same people aren't let down later on congratulations I mean I think you deserve it and people turning up is a kind of testament to the quality of the work and 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 I've said before um, the generosity of your output you know that you could just throw a recipe out there but you respond to questions and you go into detail and you kind of troubleshoot for people and and people really appreciate that so um, I'm, I'm really glad you're getting to see the rewards of all of that effort. I think you deserve it. You should enjoy that. Um, Thank you so much. The I haven't actually got my hands on the book yet. It's not out. I've got it on pre-order, <laughs> on pre-release. Oh, it, no. It's okay, crying. I I'm feel sorry. like we could pull some strings for you. <laughs> Please. Um, well, well, actually, we should be um, getting a copy that I will put out with this episode put up as a competition for people to win a copy of the book um so that should work out quite nicely if it arrives in time fingers crossed i hope it will but yeah so for everybody else i think it's out here on the 29th of september is that right you know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's I'm, I'm a terrible author oh my gosh or thereabouts um i can certainly um, clarify that and put a link in in the show notes my last thing is when you were talking about you know people saying that your recipes were part of an important day for them and, and it kind of brought home the power of food in people's lives and, and how important these things are and of food stories and of showing gratitude um i wanted just to ask if there was anybody out there in the food world doing something cool or something that you think deserves a bit of recognition and we can send a shout out to them and maybe send some listeners viewers readers their way anybody come to mind yeah, um, my buddy Michael Twitty, he had a book come out right before mine came out, and we've known each other for a couple years, and uh, he, he, so he has been doing a lot of research into um, African-American culinary foodways in America, and, and how uh, the history of slavery in the South has like really influenced the cuisine of America at large, and specifically in the South, and he's doing this amazing kind of like 
genealogy of the food, but his own genealogy and his own history and coming mm-hmm. together. And he came through Kentucky actually on my birthday a couple years ago. And I had the extreme pleasure of hosting him around town and taking him to all my favorite restaurants and driving him. He went to see um, the Burley tobacco fields. Uh, mm-hmm. So we drove out into the countryside and was able to show him that. And we took him to a, a cemetery that's out in the country that I know of uh, is a slave cemetery and was able to just like, you know, he went there and just like able to pay his respects and mm-hmm. kind of like have a hand on that. And so I, I felt really um, privileged to be able to kind of facilitate that experience for him that he could check out these places in Kentucky and see that. And his book is out. And I think it's a subject that is not, especially in America is not touched nearly enough and, and not acknowledged and especially by white people who are like, like to pretend that everything is ours and it's terrible. And I, I like constantly want to shine a spotlight on that and, and uplift whenever I can. Um, but anyhow, so his book is out, it's called the cooking gene and he has a blog called Afro culinaria and it's just an amazing resource for anyone who's interested in history, for anyone who's interested in soul food or Southern food and Southern cuisine, or even American cuisine, because there's so many ways that those food ways intersect and have influenced uh, American food at large. And it's just a really remarkable story. And I feel, I know that at least in my own book writing process is this really brutal process. It's so difficult. It's so emotionally difficult. And I'm just talking about cupcakes, you know, like I, it's, I know it's so much more difficult and it's easy to kind of sell people on that. Like, right. Like, mm. Hey, do you want to read a book about like birthday parties and cupcakes? I've got the book for you. And then it's like, Hey, do you want to read a book that's going to cause you to have some like really uh, intense soul searching mm. or maybe like question some of the things that you've taken for granted or maybe realize some wrongs that have been committed. And, and that's like a much harder sell for like a mass market audience. Absolutely. So I, I like to shout out to him and, encourage anybody who has an interest in those topics or even if you don't like surprise yourself and and check it out Mm. no i completely concur i have his book um and i am up to the section where he is converting to judaism um and which is fascinating (laughs) which is like a whole amazing (laughs) story (laughs) um and so and and i think you're absolutely right you know it's on one side there's kind of sunshine flowers bubblegum rain of of cakes and baking and and loveliness (laughs) um but on the other side that and again, this is kind of partly what the podcast is about, that food has really deep roots. It has deep cultural roots. It has deep personal roots. And we, I kind of think we ignore that kind of at our peril. I did, um, one of the podcasts mm. I did was with a Brazilian pastry chef and she is, um, she's kind of white European by heritage. Her grandparents were immigrants to Brazil uh, from Italy. And uh, so she was talking about how you know people don't really accept her as Brazilian because she's white and not you know, what people would imagine Brazilians to look like. But then she also described how the movement of cassava through through Brazil. Mm. So cassava, you know, coming from kind of indigenous tribes. And I'd always known as cassava as a, as a black food, as an African food. And she was explaining that, no, actually it had been indigenous and it had gone to Africa on the slave ships because it was a cheaper form of nutrient of, of energy oh, wow. than rice. You know, and we sat and had that conversation. She had looked that up so that she could be sure. And she was suddenly aware of this food that she'd taken for granted as a breakfast food, having these really deep roots in, in her culture, in the history of slavery in Brazil and just being taken for granted. So, yeah, that was a fascinating conversation for me. And um, yeah, absolutely. If more people can kind of engage with that kind of conversation, I think it's it, we all gain from that. Yeah, absolutely. It needs, it needs to be had. Cool. So I think that is a pretty good place to wrap that up. Where can people find you 
on socials if they want to kind of get in touch and shout your praises uh, yeah or answer questions I love I love troubleshooting and I'm always glad to do that I am brave tart on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and those are, are basically the only places where I, I really am active in any meaningful sense okay and people can get hold of your recipes outside of the book on serious eats where you are head pastry guru yes indeed awesome thank you so much Stella um it was a really lovely conversation really really grateful that you took the time out of the tour to come and do the podcast and um, this is so awesome thank you so much for having me no problem um lots and lots of luck with the book and the rest of the tour thank you so much Kimberly Thanks again to Stella for taking the time out of her busy tour to talk with me. If you head over to my website, that's kimberlywilson.co forward slash podcast, you'll see the link to the recipe for her delicious cinnamon rolls. I've made them. They are incredible. I urge you all to make them this weekend. And if you do, drop us a line and let us know how you get on. In upcoming episodes, I'll be talking about the psychological benefits of meditation and reviewing some products that promise to enhance your brain power. Until then, thank you very much for listening and I wish you the very best of health. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 